Hey, Anthony, it's Joe. I just wanted to say thank you for your episode and your bonus episode on using music and using mind crime in your games. That sounded like an amazing game, dude. I've never run a game where I was switching between systems based on what happened in the story. And I, I, I might be getting that wrong, but that's kind of what it sounded like you were doing. You were switching between having them be the vampires and the mages and the werewolves and stuff. That's freaking cool, dude. <laughs> That's really cool. And yeah, why am I not surprised to learn that you used to be on radio, man? You have a voice for radio, which is way better than me, who's got a face for radio. Anyway, man, peace out. Just in case opening with someone else's voice and... Joe, by the way, you have a fantastic voice. Just in case that opening has left people in doubt about what they are listening to, you are indeed listening to the Casting Shadows podcast. If you'd like to know more about the ways that I interact online about role-playing games, all that information will be at the end of the episode, so we don't have to bore the people who already know. And if you are curious, you know where to go directly to find out. Okay. What is this episode about? Well, I had the great pleasure of receiving some voice messages from Carl Rodriguez from the Geomologist Presents. And I had that nice message from Joe Richter of the Hindsightless podcast. And so we'll answer some of the questions that they raised in their messages. And we'll extend the topic a little bit further to the idea of troop-style play. In Joe's message, which you heard at the start of the show, he brought up a little bit of uncertainty about whether or not the players involved in the Mage Chronicle, based on Operation Mindcrime that I described in the previous two episodes, he brought up the question of whether or not they were switching back and forth between other characters in other Chronicles. And yes, Joe, you understood it perfectly. That's exactly what was going on. So... In the process of play, we had specific nights for specific chronicles, so people generally knew that if they showed up on Wednesday night, we would be playing Vampire, or if they showed up on Sunday night, we'd be playing Dark Ages Vampire, or whatever. However, sometimes those chronicles had additional chronicles which grew out of them, which involved mortal characters of some kind, or some other related supernatural characters, or some other band of related uh, vampire characters, or werewolf characters, or mage characters, or whatever. Every once in a while, I would bring out a different set of character sheets and say, we're going to play these guys tonight, or we're going to play these guys for this, you know, for this hour, or for this scene, or whatever. So, what made all of this possible was that the setting was persistent and it was organized in my mind and hopefully in the players' minds by, by year and by specific events, you know, before this particular NPC appeared or disappeared, before so-and-so was killed, before, you know, this particular year or that particular Christmas, that kind of thing. So... We had a sense of when things happened relating to characters and relating to events in play. 
And we were playing a lot. So all of this stuff was kept very firmly in mind uh, just by socializing with each other and playing uh, so many different characters, but in the same setting. Sometimes separated by a year, sometimes from the perspective of who you're playing today, the character you played yesterday was in your future. Often they were in the past. And so what this allowed me to do was to play through the same events from different perspectives, uh, separated by a lot of time. So the, the scene that I mentioned in the war story, in the bonus episode of the black van uh, allowing a group of unaffiliated mages to use their magical abilities to mind control the crowd and start a riot... That scene was played through from different perspectives from different groups. So two different groups of vampires and a a more established elder group of vampires played through that, as well as some younger, up-and-coming, more precariously placed in vampire society vampires played through that, as well as two different groups of mages, the ones that I talked about and ones that played through that same scene later on after I came to Korea. So I found that um, this is all part of of my notion of preparation for improvisation. And there are are always things, I don't know, I I find that when you think about things afterward, there's so many uh, viewpoints or perspectives or ideas that come to mind that you say, oh, you know, I I wish I had noticed this at the time. And I wish this this, uh, had stuck out at out to me at the time, I would have described it better, I would have described it it differently. And uh, what I'm not talking about is kind of a a time travel where all of those characters I just mentioned were all in the same same place, you know, they all could have seen each other. But what I mean is they were all in, they were all affected by that moment. Some of them were in direct proximity to it and were interacting with it, and some were directly affected by it. Uh, and some simply heard about it or came upon the scene afterward or were were in that place just before and and that kind of thing. So some of the people who were playing in it, uh, you know, were nodding their heads because they they realized where they were in space and time, and now they had a chance to learn a little bit more about what that mysterious van thing was all about or or what was it about you know, these rumors of riots that were spread. And, and for other people in the room, it was a completely new experience that uh, that didn't have any relation to anything else that they had heard before or had played through before. And, you know, I, I like all of that. So the, the group was used to playing multiple characters. They were used to playing, usually, only one character per night unless a character died or unless it suddenly became really apparent that the character that, that needed to be involved in this was one of their other characters, right? So if the, the group needed to negotiate with a particular werewolf or, or with a particular vampire, or if they were um, convinced that somebody had done, done something and, and tracked them down, then you know a player might switch to that character in the moment and, and play through it. But generally speaking, uh, we didn't do a lot of shifting uh, in the moment. But we had this very large cast of characters, and we had different nights set aside for, for each of the campaigns, which in, in Storyteller are called Chronicles. So they all 
tied together, and they were all like uh, they were all nested within each other, kind of like one of those uh, Russian dolls. You know, so the the main doll holding everything together was the original Vampire Chronicle, which ran for six years, and then inside each of them there were other main holding chronicles, like the the main Werewolf Chronicle and the main Mage Chronicle and the main Wraith Chronicle. And each one of those had smaller chronicles inside it from time to time that involved mortals or involved mixed groups of of supernaturals and and the like. And sometimes those characters were only used once or twice or they were used for um, some evening where not enough people could show up or or they were used for you know some other event. But uh, all of those things held were held together by by the Vampire Chronicle. And so just before I left for Korea, we were able to do kind of a bringing all the loose ends to a close um, kind of experience um, where that main chronicle was shut down and, and people were playing uh, characters that they hadn't played for years and people were, were playing through the scene on one night from one perspective and playing through it on another night from a different perspective in a different location. And, uh, and that was kind of fun. And then uh, about a year after that, I had an event to talk about, you know, what was really going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that was kind of fun. This is how I like to approach campaigns when I have the opportunity um, to have a persistent universe and to have the events and the stories created by play uh, be honored in future play and become uh become things that we react to, that become uh, a part of the fabric of the experience of the characters' lives. And uh, the ability to do that requires a stable group, and it requires kind of a larger number of people um, in order to give it any real weight and, and an opportunity for people to be involved in some of it, but not all of it, so that as they shift from game to game and time to time over over the years of the group being together, there are different surprises and there are different nostalgic moments and different memories are called upon and and, uh, different groups of people get to experience things that they were and weren't involved in uh, all in the same kind of stew of of experience. So it's it's, uh, what I like to do. It hasn't something I've been able to do a lot here and I'm definitely finding that playing online um, has made everything harder, but that's something for another day. Hey, Runesunger, this is the Geomologist. Thank you so much for that music and preparation episode. I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad to, I was really, I really actually enjoyed listening to how you incorporated Mind Crime, especially into your Mage game. Um, it definitely has given me inspiration to look down and look at my favorite, uh, my favorite kind of genres, maybe even Judas Priest. I mean, they do a lot of like this robots and post-apocalyptic thing, right? So maybe it'd be cool to have that music in the background and playing um, while I run games and use that to inspire a post-apocalyptic Empire in the East type of game. America, I don't know. America seems more hairband than heavy metal, right? But um, thanks again for that. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for that call, Carl. I think that Judas Priest, in terms of inspiration for role-playing games, is like lightning in a bottle. There's there's so many things 
that they can provide inspiration for. And it's it's funny what you what you're talking about being inspired by, you know, like the the cover for Screaming for Vengeance, and uh, you know the idea of the, the painkiller and the sinner and the jugulator and and all the things that we have uh, given to us these these mighty machines of destruction and metal uh, brought to us uh, by priests down through the decades. And uh, I say it's funny that you mention that because a couple of years ago, I had uh, published a scenario for the design mechanism for their Luther Arkwright role-playing game. And that led to negotiations with a different company to do some do something else for Mithras. And uh, it ultimately fell through. There's a there's a death in the in the family here that uh, kind of took all the the fun out of the world. But uh, the pitch that I had given them was a, a post-apocalyptic world with uh, the, the the wreckage of machines like those, you know, directly inspired by Judas Priest, you know, you know, buried in the wastelands all around these these small communities, and you know, the notion would have been that as the campaign unfolded, more of these things might be discovered, and in a sense, an arms race toward toward revi- you know revitalizing them and, and and getting them back into action. Uh, I guess partly inspired by Voltron from from that perspective, and uh, I was really looking forward to putting, you know, pen to paper metaphorically, putting fingers to keyboard, as it were, to get that going. But uh, but anyway, I put it out there as as an idea that yeah, you know, I I definitely think this is a cool idea. This has a, a a lot of of legs to it, and you know, playing the music in the session or not playing the music in the session, just you know, using it to support your own prep and. Uh, having it playing in the back of your mind, uh, you know, as the uh, as the prelude to to description and uh, inspiration for the players, uh, I think that that could be a lot of fun. And so it's either a, a case of great minds thinking alike or fools refusing to differ. But uh, I'm going to go with the former. And though oddly, my genre is heavy metal and heavier. The song that's in my head right now, especially since you mentioned using covers to change tunes or change the scene, is the Hazy Shade of Winter, right? You can do the Simon and Garfunkel for the, an opening scene, and then maybe it's a, you mentioned Call of Cthulhu a lot, maybe it's a Call of Cthulhu uh, late 60s, 70s, and then you do something generational and suddenly we're in the 90s and you're listening to the Bengals' Hazy Shade of Winter. I don't know why I'm spitballing here, I'm sure, but... Um, inspired by that cool idea of having covers. There's so many awesome and funky covers that are out there. So you can deep dive into like a you know a corridor of covers, as Liquid Metal calls it, on Sirius XM. So uh, again, thanks, and I'll holler at you soon, Carl. That's exactly how uh, my mind goes. You know, going down the rabbit hole, as it were, or this corridor of covers. And uh, when you really start looking for different cover versions of a particular song, it's sometimes surprising that there aren't any, but it's also surprising that there are hundreds. And when you get into the idea of generation games for Call of Cthulhu or the idea of uh, alternate realities, uh, like from the old TV show Sliders or from Luther Arkwright that I was talking about before, or the, the game Broken Rooms that I was talking about before, the 
the subtle differences, you know, between a, a, a rock version or a metal version or a country version of a particular tune uh, gives you a lot of flexibility. But often we don't realize, I think, that some major hits, I guess often from a person's teenage years, the, the teenager in question often doesn't realize that their new favorite song is actually a cover or remake of an older song. And later in life, uh, when they start to curate their music collection, they discover that, well, you know, like 50 artists recorded this before the one that you love. But, and that can, be, that can be really cool. An old uh, bluesy or soul uh, version of a song that later becomes uh, an industrial song. I guess I'm thinking here of Tainted Love uh, that, you know, I came to know first via Soft Cell, but is actually a much older song than, uh, than we might think. You know, that, that notion uh, or that, that ability to have that wide range of flexibility in a song turns out to give you a lot of inspirational power and, and, uh, and set up a lot of of different situations for play to start in than we might have realized, or as a closer, as a you know the the big revelation that we're not in Kansas anymore, or we are in Kansas, but it's not our Kansas, and you know suddenly everything is is really different. But I really like it as a notion of of a generation game, like our perspective is continuing on on the meta level, on the player level, uh, although everything is different from the perspective of the characters that we're playing now in this in this troop of characters that we're playing down through the years. And having that through line, that musical through line that can actually appear as a part of play, I think is, is an important and, uh, and, and very cool way to go about things. So like you, I find that a lot of the songs that uh, I end up wanting to use or, or feeling comfortable using, like I, I recognize that, that how I use them, if I use them in play, how I use them will be recognized and maybe appreciated by uh, a mixed audience of listeners is that I wind up with uh, with pop songs or, or more popular groups and then can play a metal version of something or I can I can make things harder or move things into a completely different different genre and so yeah, hazy shade of winter is a fantastic example and uh, I think if you do a search for hazy shade of winter covers you're also going to Discover that it was it was done again uh, by uh, the frontman for Chemical Romance, and uh, so you can have three very distinct versions of of that song from from very different decades, and that would definitely play into uh, a generation game or a legacy game uh, really nicely. I also like to listen to really heavy music, uh, or you know really grinding music like uh, Candlemass or, or put in Dark Tranquility or, or Slayer or uh, Death. But these can have a very polarizing effect on the people who are in the room, if you're lucky enough to have people in the room with you and you're not forced to play online. Uh, so again, this is one of the things that, that uh, again, pushed me into not using music in play, but using instead music to... Uh, to run in the back of my head, to you know, to run in my memory, or to run during preparation, and to assign the the feeling or to assign the the texture of that particular music to how I'm going to describe a person, place, or thing. And uh, so, you know, if I were a, a deep lover of pop music, I think I would be I would still be using 
music more overtly in play. But given my, my predilections of seeing the, the shock and horror on people's face when Skinny Puppy comes on, uh, I, uh, I had to reevaluate its immediate effects and, uh, and then notice that even with the pop songs, that for that moment, play stops and people are enjoying the song rather than being in the moment of play. And that's not one of my particular goals, but it might be another group's uh, way to immerse themselves in the enjoyment of the moment. Anyway, thanks again for your call. So those two callers, in trying to answer the questions or the suggestions that they raised, brought up an intersection of two distinct ideas, and these ideas require each other in order to exist, and that's the idea of generational games that Carl mentioned, and troop-style play that that Joe pointed out, where one player has multiple characters, and where one campaign in generational play exists in a variety of time periods. So, in both cases, we wind up with characters having, or players, sorry, having access to multiple characters. Now, Troop-style play can work like it does in Ars Magica, for example, where on any given night you might be playing one of several different characters that you have designed, like you have a stable of characters. And tonight you might be playing a, a mage, and someone else might be playing that mage's assistant, and someone else might be playing the huntsman, and someone else might be playing a, a, a guard, and someone else might be playing just a, a, a simple servant. And they're embroiled in some kind of mystery. But the next time you settle down to play, those, those roles have been switched. Someone else is playing a servant, not the same servant. Someone else is playing uh, a guard. Someone else, or maybe two people, are playing mages this time, and, and so on and so forth. So everyone has multiple characters, and depending on, on the situation of play, choices are made about who is playing who when. That's one kind of troop-style play. Another kind is when there are multiple characters in a scene and you are playing multiple characters in a scene. And all you really have to juggle is that you try not to get involved in conversations with yourself. And this is something that game masters uh, need to develop as a skill themselves anyway. And so if you have a group of game masters in the playgroup, then this is an easy skill to, you know, to transmit to others if it seems odd or awkward. But even if you don't, uh, the idea is that um, the social dynamics of a particular scene will require certain people to be in the foreground and other people to be in the background. And we can see this really well highlighted and supported in the Modiphius game Star Trek Adventures for 2D20. So it's not the only game that requires this. It's not the only game that uses it as, as a normal part of play, but that's a particularly good way to go about it. The other way is where characters aren't particularly tied to one particular player, where anyone can take on uh, a role by need. And this really has a minimizing effect on how often you end up having to talk to yourself. <laughs> and uh, Star Trek Adventures is uh, one where that is also one of its, its basic underpinning concepts is that uh, 
these characters are created and there are secondary characters in in scenes aboard starships in Star Trek and somebody needs to play them and this might shift as we move through play you might you might be playing the navigator in the first scene of the night and then later on during an away mission uh, you're playing your main character and someone else is playing that secondary character because their main character is tasked with something else so this being willing to shift uh, through different characters depending on the particular moment that you're playing through uh, some people can find a lot of fun others find it very tiring or stressful and they they worry about getting it right they worry about consistency and this this sort of thing but it's kind of interesting that if you turn that on its head if you remove consistency as a responsibility and instead instead turn consistency into a discovery then you can find out you can kind of remember that we're playing a campaign like so many times we create a character uh, just before play we don't really have a sense of what their personality is going to be like we don't know uh, how we're going to interact with people as that character you know are they a bit of a bully are they uh, condescending are they sweet and lovable uh, are they a team player do they have to be convinced of things sometimes we don't know until it's required of us to know in the moment who that character is and that discovery process is a lot of fun and we continue to discover that character every time we play them as we go through the campaign and sometimes that discovery process can be years in the making but when you suggest to someone that they take on hey could you play this npc in this moment or could you play you know roger's character while he's not here or this kind of stuff then people give themselves extra stress oh i don't think i could play him the way that that roger plays him but we're still playing in a campaign and that character's personality is still unfolding it doesn't have to be a source of stress it can be an interesting point of discovery and we're still imagining the character we're not imagining you playing the character we're seeing you we're hearing you but we're imagining the character and in our ears it can sound just as much like the character as when Roger played them and I think that's interesting another game you can see this happen in uh, is called Circle of Hands which is uh, a game written by Ron Edwards and in that one of the the presets of, of play is that every time you play you'll be switching through uh, the cast of characters that have been created so the, the rule is that you can't play the same character back to back so you can alternate between two characters but that's as, as close as you can get to playing the same char character uh, twice in a row so there uh, right from the get-go one of the points of playing that game instead of playing some other game is to see this effect right so you have a maybe you have a group of five people and so there will be ten characters that are created now some of these characters are going to die as we go along so the the pool of characters is going to diminish over time but we're gonna have 10 characters to choose from and people will choose the five people will choose five characters and the next time those people can't play those characters so people could choose new characters right the other five that weren't played or they could choose the five that are already in play and, and move them around the group in some way or 
there could be a mix of those things. Some people could bring in characters that weren't played last time, and other people could adopt a character that someone else played the last time. But no one's playing the character that they played last time. This can sound very weird or very challenging, but, of course, winds up being just another way to play a role-playing game, and one that a lot of people, it turns out that they really enjoy. And so... I have been involved in you know, running generation games and doing troop-style play for pretty much as long as I can remember now. And where these concepts were formalized for me, where I, I learned what to call them, and uh, I found a, a way to more quickly describe it, and it, I don't know, having it in a game book seems to give it more legitimacy, uh, legitimacy, right? So if you're trying to persuade someone who's a little bit resistant, you can say, well, you know, this very famous game that you've heard of does it. And like, oh, really? Well, okay, let's try. <laughs> but anyway, we've been doing it for as long as I can remember. And, uh, you know, think back to any of you listening who were playing uh, D&D in the late 70s and 80s, of course. Some of you will have played with henchmen and some of you will have lost characters in dungeons and had to, you know, draw from the pool of, of henchmen or followers or hirelings in order to justify the existence of your new character in the scene. And this is exactly troop-style play. And, and some of you may have been involved in characterizing those hirelings and henchmen so that you know, there was conversation, there was backtalk, and there were side missions and, and whatnot involving these background characters. And again, that's troop-style play. So it's, it's really been there from the beginning. It's just how we look at it and how we mechanize it and how we decide to enjoy it. So in a generation game, we can follow a family down through time as a, as a mystery or as a, as a recurring problem continues to unfold across the decades or across the centuries. So in a game of Call of Cthulhu, you could play Cthulhu Dark Ages, right? You could set it during the Roman times, and then you could set it during the Middle Ages, you know, that this problem has come around again, and then you could set it during... Uh, the Renaissance, and you could set it during the 1890s or the 1920s or the 1950s. You know, uh, the Atomic Age has brought it around again, and you know we're following a secret society. We're following uh, a group of scholars who keep learning and relearning the same truths as you know as they go through their lives, or a family that passes down a secret, or a secret society that passes down a commandment, and and that sort of stuff. All of these opportunities for setting up play rely on the flexibility of the players to get involved with a recurring situation across time with different characters, but characters tied to a particular idea such as family or a secret society. And, and I find a lot of, of fertile ground there to plant seeds of inspiration that grow into really cool games. But anyway, thanks for those calls and thanks for this opportunity to, to talk a little bit about uh, a part of gaming and a, a part of campaign play that I find particularly satisfying and that I miss quite a bit in kind of this, this new reality of online gaming and shorter game times and uh, the challenges of modern scheduling and all those things which make it harder to bring out these more nuanced uh, types of campaign play. But anyway, until the next episode, take care.
I'm going to place this here as a postscript, and I get the feeling that there's probably going to be some other postscripts. So even if I say goodbye, I may not have actually said goodbye. Uh, so I don't really mean goodbye until I start talking about icy cold Coca-Colas. Anyway, here's the postscript. On April 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll be the guest on a roundtable hosted by Third Floor Wars. My host will be Craig Shipman of Third Floor Wars, and my fellow guest will be Seth Skorkowski of the Seth Skorkowski YouTube channel fame. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Our ostensible topic will be game mastering. So could be a lot of fun. This is the third of the roundtable events hosted by Craig at Third Floor Wars. The first one featured John Harper and Sean Nittner. You know, John Harper from Blades in the Dark. And the second featured Navi Drake and Spencer Campbell. It was recently released, and you can find these on Craig's YouTube channel. He also hosts them on Twitch. So, April 28th, which is a Thursday at 8 p.m., Eastern Time. If this sounds interesting to you, please make a note and uh, join in live. Otherwise, take care. Just one final note. I thought this episode was finished, but I wanted to point out to people who listen to me but who do not yet listen to the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, run by Jason Connerly. On April 1st, but not connected to April 1st, Jason released a long and very interesting episode from my point of view, where he collected a large number, I think 21 was the number, of uh, listener call-ins to talk about the games that they own, that they, you know, that they want to play, that they aren't playing, that they haven't been able to play, or that you know something has prevented them from playing. I love this kind of interaction with the community. It shows just how diverse our interests can be, how many different types of games and different ways to play there are out there, even when we're talking about a, you know, a small sample of people who listen to one particular podcast. And so it could be assumed to have you know, very similar tastes. But you know, if you haven't heard that episode yet, I strongly recommend you go over to the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and listen to that episode. And if it catches your fancy, there's a similar episode from the month before where people talk about their three favorite role-playing systems. This is also a lot of fun. Anyway, let's talk about this show. If you don't know, if you do know about this show and about me, then stop listening now, right? Save yourself, run off, go to the kitchen, get a nice icy cold glass of Coke, and relax. Your work is done. You've been listening to the Casting Shadows podcast, hopefully on wherever you can conveniently listen to any of your other podcasts, but is released originally via Anchor. If you're interested in hearing more of what I have to say, but not actually hearing me say it, reading it instead, you can travel to castingshadowsblog.com, a WordPress blog, which has been going for 12 years now. And while it doesn't have a daily release rate or anything like that, I do hope that there might be something there 
that gives you some momentary enjoyment to read. And if it sparks a question or a comment, feel free to leave a comment there or here or any of the other places where you can reach me online. The last thing I should mention would be our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash runeslinger, which has been going for quite a while as well and has a wide variety of videos and actual play videos, all focused on role-playing games and you know, what they mean to us with specific focus on games maybe not entirely on the beaten track, although some are pretty big games. Anyway, until the next time. This is it. This is really the end. It's okay. You can turn it off. Take care.